Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. On this week's show, Tom and Lori talk to playwright, screenwriter, novelist, and actor Eric Bogosian about his new book, Operation Nemesis, about the Armenian genocide. And Twitter is sponsoring a fiction festival. I might read my new Twitter novel, which I've written since I started talking 30 seconds ago. Eric Bogosian is a playwright, a monologist, a screenwriter, and an actor, and a novelist. And his most recent book is a nonfiction look at the Armenian genocide. And he came in to talk to Laurie and Tom. The book Operation Nemesis was the name of a plot to avenge the Armenian genocide. Guys who went out and assassinated the people responsible. Exactly. It would be like being able to assassinate Himmler and Goring and some of the other charming folk. Hello, Eric. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. And this is about uh, your childhood, in a way, this, this book. It starts there. Yeah, I grew up Armenian-American in Massachusetts. My grandparents were survivors of the genocide, specifically one grandfather who got out of there. He used to tell me these nightmarish stories and he would usually end with an admonition to be careful around Turks, and if I ever met a Turk, I should kill him. And I was getting this advice as young as four years old. So that sort of set the stage for an attitude, which I never really looked at too closely for most of my life. I mean, I was busy doing other things, and there was this ossified notion of what being Armenian means. It means this brutal history in this faraway place. And then the church and the music and the weddings and the food and all of that was also part of it. And I was thinking, well, that's my grandparents, that's old people, of which there were a whole bunch of them who were most familiar speaking a foreign language. And then there's me as sort of American suburban kid riding my bike around. And when I became an actor, I became very self-conscious about being pigeonholed as an ethnic actor or something like that. And I even had agents saying things to me about how I should have my nose fixed or my hair straightened or my name changed. Once I started getting some attention, that brought the community's attention to me. And people kept asking me when I was going to write something about being Armenian or Armenian genocide or something. Then I learned about the assassination of Talat. And this assassination, a young Armenian guy in 1921 assassinated Talat, and he was arrested. This is 1921, Berlin, and there was a trial, and he was acquitted because, because he said he had seen his whole family murdered before his eyes. He had been left for dead himself, and then he had accidentally come across Talat in Berlin when he was an engineering student five years later. So he just felt he had, you know, he was he was forced to do this, he was compelled. And, and, the, uh, and the, uh, the headline in the paper was, they had to let him go. Yeah, they had to, you know, what else could you do? Mm-hmm. I thought this would make a good screenplay. It seemed to have all the elements. I immediately discovered that Tetlerian was not telling the truth in court. And that, in fact, he was a member of an assassination squad 
that called themselves Operation Nemesis. And they operated out of Massachusetts. He didn't see his family get massacred. He hadn't even been in Turkey at the time. And he had been sent specifically to Berlin to track down and kill Tala. They were all in Berlin or some of them were in Berlin? The, the, the people running it were actually in the United States. They were a bunch of small-time businessmen in New England, in New York State, CPA in Syracuse, a, a life insurance salesman in Hartford. And then the gunmen and some of the other operatives, spies and so forth, were spread out all over Europe. And they were always looking for these former leaders of the Ottoman Empire. And they would track them and kill them. And so in 1921 and 1922, it's like the end of The Godfather. I'm telling you, they one guy after another, they're knocking off and they don't get caught. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I found it. I have to say De Rogi uh, really found it, but I, I, I went and I did all the other spade work that was necessary to say, okay, here's this story, but then again, what is an Armenian anyway? And what is the Ottoman Empire? And what happened? And what was the genocide? All those things I thought a reader like myself would have to wanted answers to this because I honestly, as an, as an Armenian, I don't even know half this stuff. One can see it as a movie. It would be a good action movie, but that wasn't the way you wanted to tell the story. And once you committed to this way of telling the story, I mean, I know that you have to work very, very hard to, to do what you do in the theater, but this kind of work is less fun. You know, I mean, it's, it's a different I, I kind of... I enjoy it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, you got to understand, it was novel for me. I'd never done anything like this before. So I'd never gone into archives before. I had graduate students working for me in other countries who I would instruct, go look for this, and they would go find it. And when we would open up those files, and we're looking at secret British documents from almost 100 years ago, that's pretty exciting. It's thrilling, right? Uh, yeah. And then what happens is you keep moving your way backwards through the source books and you realize that this guy basically took his whole book from that guy. And eventually you find the guy in 1967 who's writing the seminal work on, let's say, missionaries in Anatolia at the University of Minnesota. He gets no credit. He's been now written again and again and again by everybody else who have bigger names, the Bernard Lewis's or whatever. And so it was like when you find that bedrock research, that's also exciting. I had no idea what the method was. So for example, everything I do normally is to make things up. So I would be writing away and I'd be have this historian looking over my shoulder and it'd say, well, what, where did you find this where he says this? And I said, well, I don't know, he, he could have said that. And they go, <laughs> no, you can't. You can't say that if he didn't say that. We need a source for every single thing, especially quotes. Now, what about the getting the book published? Can you tell us the story of that? Was it easy? Um, was there someone, you know, an editor immediately interested? I don't know where I got the confidence that I thought that all this effort was going to just naturally lead to a book because most of the time I was working on spec, I was fortunate to have been on Law and Order for 60 episodes and that kind of, it's what I call the Dick Wolf Prize. I basically <laughs> got subsidized so that I could begin this and keep going. And then Little Brown, Jeff Chandler at Little Brown made a bid and said he was really excited by the book. Then one year ago when we were about to begin grinding out, doing the real line-by-line -line edit, Jeff left the company. And I called up my friend Sarah Vowell and I said, Sarah, tell me this isn't 
really bad news. Mm-hmm. And she said, I can't tell you that. This is really bad news. <laughs> Could be. But Little Brown decided that they really wanted to make this book happen. John Parsley, who's a terrific editor, decided to oversee David Sobel, who did Balkan Ghosts. And David came in with a completely other kind of attitude. He came in and he sort of put a grid over the whole book. And the book suddenly became much, much easier to read. So it's all the same information mm-hmm. because there was a ton of cool stuff I had to get into this book. Like, what is what is a sultan and what's his private life like? Mm-hmm. What what was that? That was har- that was a great part. Yeah, the thank har- you. Yeah, the harem. What's a, what's a harem? And, yeah. and what and, and I you could get lost. You'd be reading and going, wait, where are we now in the story? So David brought in this sort of rock solid approach. Well, as a monologist, you're doing a kind of essay structure all the time, right? Which is discursive and which is uh, associative. And the historian's art is a little bit more linear. Yeah. I was just always looking for interesting things that I didn't know about, like starting with things like, where is Armenia anyway? And what is (laughs) Armenia? What was the Ottoman Empire? Um, And then more complex things that I thought needed to be talked about here, like what the oil politics of the period. There's sort of a fiction that they weren't thinking about oil during World War I, that that didn't really start until after the war. But in fact, it was always on their mind, very much the British mind. Tom and Lori are here with Eric Bogosian on the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 FM. And answer that question, where is Armenia? Does it include, for instance, Nagorno-Karabakh? <laughs> well, that's, your, that's a trick question. Well, it, <laughs> it does today, uh, politically. Uh, Armenia's borders have shifted over the millennia. There was a time when Armenia extended all the way from the Mediterranean to the Black Sea. What sort of happened prior to World War I was there were many Ottoman vilayets that had very large Armenian populations, and we call those the six vilayets. This is where most of the really horrific bloodshed took place, and that bordered and butts up against the Russian border, which is basically the Caucasus. The Caucasus form a natural border between Russia and Turkey, and Russia has slipped over that border many times. When there was the Bolshevik Revolution, the Russians just basically retreated out of World War I and off that border in 1917, leaving the Armenians kind of, any Armenians that were fighting there or any provinces were very vulnerable, and it didn't end well. For a couple of years, it was independent, And then the Soviets, they entered and took it. Today, Armenia is independent again. It has been for the last 20 years since the breakup of the Soviet Union, or 25 years, and it struggles to sort of get its feet firmly on the ground, given all these states economically were very dependent on the Soviet Union. It's a well-known fact that um, Hitler in 1939, right before invading Poland, said Nobody remembers what happened to the Armenians. The impulse to to record everything that you possibly can, did that feel like a calling for a while? Well, I, do, I mean, I talk about that in the book. I think denial versus memorializing is very powerful tension between those two. I do think it's very important to memorialize these people, partially because and this may sound strange, I was downtown, I was watching the buildings at the time of 9-11, and that 
horrible destruction of life. There were no corpses, you know, they couldn't find the people. And that added so much to the grief of those who had survived. And that's the same thing here where hundreds of thousands of Armenians were massacred and their bones just strewn about in the desert. And there's something very wrong about that. Even now, as I was writing the book, I discovered what had happened to my great-grandfathers. My own family didn't seem to really understand what had happened. They just knew that they had been taken into the army. And if I let myself think about what had happened to them, that these men were taken into these labor battalions and then routinely you know, had their throats cut, or so, it's, it's very hard to wrap my mind around that. If you're Armenian, I mean, one thing about Turkish denial is that it presents everything as this logical debate, which is absurd, how they foster that that approach to genocide the same way that tobacco companies will say, well, we're still, you know, we don't really know whether cigarettes cause cancer or not. There's a debate. They went, They did that for decades. But if you're Armenian, every Armenian has someone in their family who told them stories. And unless you believe that this is massive conspiracy of Armenians who are insisting on telling their grandkids I was in Azerbaijan and Iran recently and kind of kept running into ethnic hatreds of all kinds, obviously a lot about the Kurds in Iran. But in Azerbaijan, I was I was at an Avis dealership getting a car. The woman said, where are you going to go? I said, well, I'm thinking of going up here, named a town. She said, oh, yes, it's very beautiful. And I said, I'm thinking of driving into Georgia. And she said, oh, Georgia also very beautiful. She said, but not Armenia. Yeah. Armenia is not beautiful. And she, well, said it with, you know, she said it with real well, they, venom. I mean, we're in a the, currently the hatred between these two countries is at a peak, and we say no end in sight. And this this does date back to this period. In fact, one of the key Muslims who were killed by Operation Nemesis was a man named Khan Javanshir, who was a leader, a young Turk leader, but who was in Azerbaijan, who was mm-hmm. an Azerbaijani leader, because there had been. Again, oil is there too. Baku is about oil. Hitler was trying to get to the oil in Baku and the British wanted to get to the oil in Baku. And the Armenians had been involved in in the production for a very long time. And that resulted in riots and massacres there as well. You know, one of the challenges of this book was that you kind of have to start from scratch. And that includes the Ottoman Empire. I, I didn't know anything about the Ottoman Empire. And it's important to know it. It's important for Armenians to know it. For example, the sultans never procreated with Muslims. That was against the deal. So they only procreated with Christian women who had been enslaved, who were in the harem, who were concubines. Each one had a a mother of his son who was non-Muslim. Do the math, you come up with the last sultan being something like 4%. Turkic or whatever mm-hmm. that is. When you look at their pictures, the last ones, Abdul Hamid, Abdul Aziz, and the others, they are either Slavic, Greek, Armenian. As I say to my Armenian audiences, they look like your Uncle Hogop, and that's because they are your <laughs> Uncle Hogop. Likewise, the young Turks, Turk was a term that they made up to label themselves. It had to do with the same sort of backward looking mythology that the Germans were doing 25 years later. In fact, the top Turk leaders were not Turkish. Talat was Bulgarian. 
uh, you can look at Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. Ataturk, that's his name? Mm-hmm. Look at him. <laughs> he looks like Laurence Olivier. He does not look like, because he isn't. Because Turkey or the Ottoman Empire wasn't simply a Asiatic or Middle Eastern nation. It was also, it was European. It was very European. So there's a relationship of that to this kind of ethnic cleansing Absolutely. frenzy, right? Which includes the Greek Turkish population. What you end up with is basically, if you do genetic studies, and and this gets me in a lot of trouble, but you have to go to the science and look at it, you actually can't find the distinguishing, the big markers genetically that say, this guy's a Turk and this guy's an Armenian. The Armenians have been there for thousands and thousands of years. The Turks have been there, uh, the so-called Turks have been there for a thousand years. And the truth is, is that the original invaders the Turkic people from the the middle of Asia, Central Asia, there were so few of them that they basically got diluted right into these, the vast populations of that region, which is the same region, by the way, that, for example, Paul was traveling through when he was speaking to the Christian churches and these, the the new churches that had just been developed. This is what that area is, this very, very ancient, ancient area. And that's well before there were any Turks in the region. This year is the 100th anniversary of the start of the genocide, is that right? We mark it on a particular day, which is April 24th, because on that day there were mass arrests in Constantinople where the Turks, trying to cut off any kind of insurrection, rounded up anybody who was political or educated, doctors, lawyers, they got all these guys, they took them off away, and then they even, and eventually did kill them. They also uh, killed thousands of regular guys around the same time. We don't often talk about that. And this genocide was very, very strictly planned for maximum efficiency. First, all the young men, like my great-grandfathers, were put in the army. Then they were disarmed, they were killed. Now you don't have to worry about any young men, they're all gone. Then you go get all the potential leaders, and then the last group were the people in the villages who were left, who were elderly or women and children, and you pack them off into the desert yeah, until they die. It's very interesting genocidal uh, planning. I mean, because with Hitler, you know, he starts with the mentally deficient, right? He starts he starts euthanizing them, and then he takes all of the the people who ran those facilities, and he puts them in charge of concentration camps because they're already, I mean, it, it's, you know, and there's planning, whether it's conscious or not, right, that's going on. And, very and of, planned. Yeah. And, uh, and it's very much about, if you'll notice, if you go and you look at the Nazi regime, this regime, our regime here after the Civil War. Or Cambodia also. But Minister of Interior, these are people moving populations around basically with an eye to who cares if they never get to where they're going. So we did that to the Cherokee Nation, yeah. and and it was done with the Herero people in Africa, also by the Germans. Von Trotha specifically sent these poor people directly into the desert just to die in the Boer War and so forth. Concentration camps, all of this system of moving people around had been established MO as a way to... The thing that was new was even the notion of anybody objecting to it. And one of the reasons why people were objecting to it was because Europe had this possessive feeling about the Christians in the Ottoman Empire. And 
probably for political reasons, but at any rate, they would object constantly and vehemently to any mistreatment of Armenians in the late 19th century. And this built and built and built into this outrage where they were literally threatening the Ottomans during the war. They said, we are going to have trials after this war and we're going to have trials for crimes against humanity. And that's the first time that term is used hmm. in 1915 at the start of the genocide. In fact, when they get to the end of the war, there are some trials, but pretty soon the British start to back off of that position because they have a new thing they need to focus on, and that is oil and playing nice with Mustafa Kemal, the, the new leader of the Republic of Turkey in 1923, and that's the world we live in since then. Mm -hmm. The West is, is very, very... Um, it kowtows to Turkey. Turkey is too strategic, too important. Are you angry about Obama not using the word genocide where he did when he was running, but he's not using it anymore? Is that is that the situation, I think? Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not angry. I mean, I think that it speaks for itself about the man. My children have argued with me that he has no choice. That's perhaps true, but... However, he was so eloquent in laying out, if you read the quotes, what he said when he was a senator, we are in this absurd doublespeak situation where he was so eloquent, he made the argument. Then he said he would absolutely use the term when he became president, and then he doesn't. I don't know what to say to that. I mean, that just speaks for itself. There's, there's a word for that. I'm not going to get into that. He has to live with his own legacy. You know, there's some reason, and we know what that reason is. It isn't just Turkey as a strategic partner, but also what's currently going on. I mean, the situation with ISIS uh -huh. is so, such a big problem. I feel that what's happening with ISIS is on a level of what was happening in Vietnam as the Vietnam War became a, uh, something they could not solve. It's not like Iraq or Afghanistan. It's not like any other war we've been in since, since Vietnam. It is, they cannot figure it out. They don't know what to do. Mm. Well, at least the Kardashians are bringing attention to it. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad they are. And, and the Pope, of course, mm -hmm. and System of a Down. I do feel, you know, coming into this 100th anniversary of the genocide, no one really knew what was going to happen. And I think Armenians have been pleasantly surprised by the Pope's statements, by the vast turnout of people all over marching. And I think we kind of have reached a point where there's, we, we knew there was no debate, but I don't even think there's an issue about recognition anymore. We know that everybody knows, and anybody who doesn't, they're, they're a minority now, unfortunately, includes our president, our State Department. The book is Operation Nemesis, the assassination plot that avenged the Armenian genocide. Thanks so much, Eric Bogosian, for coming in and talking to us about it. Thanks for having me, guys. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books on KPFK 90.7 FM. Twitter is sponsoring a novel writing contest, and since I was given that information about an hour ago, I have written my first Twitter novel. Oh, really? I'm writing one right Mazel now. Tov. Thank you. And I'd like to read it to you. The first tweet, this is the first line of my Twitter novel. Second tweet, way better than a cell phone novel. Third tweet, here comes the inciting event. Fourth tweet, now for a plot twist in the middle. 
<laughs> Fifth tweet. Is it almost over? Hang on. Fifth tweet. The main character will now change her opinion about something important. Now, I want you to note that I have a female protagonist. The sixth tweet. Look out, another twist. <laughs> the seventh tweet. This is very meta. The seventh tweet and the end. Hashtag Twitter novel. Thank you. Very nice. Uh, that Jer- confirms Jerry, two Jerry things we know about you. your novels, which is that you're a very surprising writer and you're a feminist. A surprising writer, a feminist, and I understand how serialization works, apparently. The Twitter Fiction Festival happened in part because of uh, Margaret Atwood. Right? She's one of the people who wrote a Twitter novel. Rick Moody wrote a Twitter novel back in 2009. Twitter Story, at least, yeah, right? I think they were um, much better than mine. Well, don't say that. Don't don't, don't be down on yourself. And interestingly, there's like uh, the novelist Jonathan Evanson is letting one of his characters of his new book take over his Twitter feed. So the character is talking to. That's cool. I love that. I love that idea. That's very good. That's kind of fun, right? Yeah. Eric Jerome Dickey is uh, kind of giving a new point of view to a novel that he's published already through his Twitter feed. So people are doing some interesting, fun things with it. Tom, if you wrote a Twitter novel, what would it be about? Uh, I think we want to leave that to people's imaginations. Laurie, what about you? What would your It would be about be Nazis and Oscar Hammerstein. I bet our listener could have figured that out for herself. Our listener. <laughs> we have one. We'd like to thank our listener <laughs> for indulging this piece on the Twitter novel. Well, I think that it works really well for funny ones, although I, I think that Jennifer Wieners was actually much better bigger than that. Not Jennifer Wiener, no. right? Um, oh. Jennifer Egan. I thought that hers was kind of surprising and you know much bigger than I expected. That What I expect and what you usually get are short, funny ones. Like, for instance, Alexander McCall Smith wrote one for this very Twitter contest that we're talking about last year called the Sociopaths Ball, which is funny because it's a ball for sociopaths because sociopaths are very high achieving and they like to meet each other. Carolyn Kellogg wrote about this on Jacket Copy on the LA Times uh, book blog, and she noted that uh, there's a kind of push to get genre mashups. Uh, the ones that she mentioned were Muppet Prison Drama <laughs> and Cold War Fairy Tale. I would read a Twitter novel that was a Muppet Prison Drama. Well, you'd read a couple of tweets about it, is what you're saying, which really isn't much of a commitment. So is a Twitter novel a real thing? No. No, I mean, well, it is. When Jennifer Egan did it, she did something real with it. I Mm -hmm. think Rick Moody's actually had some literary value, but only when it was kind of put back together. And what makes it a novel? Is it just the length? How many words does a a quote Twitter novel unquote have? Yeah, well, this is, it's actually a Twitter fiction festival. It's not a Twitter novel festival. It can be as long as you want it to be. But but people, but you're saying when you say Rick Moody or Jennifer Egan, were those Twitter novels or were they Twitter stories? They were Twitter stories. Twitter stories, yeah. So no one's written a Twitter novel. Except me. (laughs) <laughs> now that you have your contract, it's very exciting. The question is, I guess, is it's fun to think about formal innovation in any fictional of course. universe, right? And so this is a way to kind of, you know, the, the idea that the Ulipo people had that the constraint is what makes literature. You, you develop an artificial constraint, and that constraint is itself generative. That's kind of interesting, and that's what this is. This is a real constraint. You have 140 characters per shot, and that constraint is generate some something different than you would get if you didn't have that constraint. Well, it's just another form of poetry, really, because there are certain forms of poetry that have very strict rules, and Twitter is like that, and uh, Most it really forms is, is, of it's a cousin of uh, the poetical... Well, all forms have strict of, rules, right? I mean, if you want to write a mystery novel, it's got fairly strict rules. Sure. You want to write a, write a thriller, it's got strict rules. You want to write a literary novel, it's got strict rules. And I, I think that your sentences can actually be more than 140 characters, right? You just end your tweet with a comma. Right, and then you do another tweet. 
right, true. and that's right. true. So really, there are no rules at all. So really, it's, there's the, not much for the fiction. This has got completely anarchic. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we just like yeah. the Twitter contest. Totally lost control of this conversation. wasted another perfectly good half hour listening to the L.A. Review of Books Radio Hour, the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. I'd like to thank Eric Bogosian, our producer and moral center, Jerry Gorin, the generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation. This is the LARB Radio Hour, KPFK 90.7, a podcast radio. See you next week.